In this episode of the Flick Lab International Film Podcast, a little preview of coming attractions. Today we're going to look at Wolf Warrior 1 and 2, the Chinese blockbuster mega hits that have raised maybe some alarms in Hollywood regarding how Hollywood should on their own approach their new cinema or whether this would be beginning to endanger Hollywood's influence in the Chinese box office. My name is Corri. I'm your host, and the second host here is Henrik. Hi. Still desperately trying to get my citizenship in the People's Republic of China approved. As you should. As as I should. These podcast episodes most definitely are doing no favors to that project. Yeah. Well. Yeah. How is that job market going there, Henrik? Any, any work available anymore after our Sisu episodes or our Chinese episodes? I'm actually starting to most positively dread for my, any kind of a future to, on, on this field, at least for myself. Yeah, that's what you get here. Tears and ruined careers. Welcome to the Flick Club. So, previously we did the episode on the battle at Lake Jiangjing 1 and 2. Now we're Continuing, uh, continuing on that road, checking out Wolf Warrior 1 and 2, which are also big mega hits in the Chinese market. And actually Wolf Warrior 2 was the biggest box office mega hit, the biggest box office hit in China until the Changjings came along. Yeah, I understood that Wolf Warrior 1, even though made profit and was a successful release, it still wasn't the same ballpark of mega Chinese mega blockbusters than uh, what its sequel ended up with to be. Yeah, and I, I can I can see why Most in certain ways. Yups. Yeah, it, it yeah. No secret there. It's a it's a better movie. It's it's way better movie than the, the, the second one is way better than the original. Although that being said there are a choice of words to be said also for Wolf Warrior 2. Right. And so Wolf Warrior has also affected the politics in China, or at least uh, the Wolf Warrior has been implemented into the, the lingo of the politics in China in the sense that it refers in China to the more assertive and the more nationalist approach to foreign policy and diplomacy. Yeah, you can see where the name is coming from. And it kind of symbolizes the, the shift in China's approach to international relations. Maybe China is now more lenient towards its approach in its in its diplomacy and foreign policy. You know, there, there was some, a little change of trajectory around 2022, I believe. But before that, there were some international incidents, let's say, uh, in, in France... And Sweden, for example. Yeah, speaking about that, I'm not entirely certain exactly how big of a shift in trajectory Chinese or China has had as a nation 
and as a political entity. It most definitely, I would say, at the time, China does try to put up a better face than, you know, what it may, may, perhaps may have done in the in the heyday of the wolf warrior politics, uh, politicians or wolf warrior diplomats. But at the same time, like, I'm... I, I have to admit, I am somewhat hesitant to actually yet give China full benefit of a doubt here. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's kind of a situation where, yeah, moves towards a softer leaning has been made. At the same time, I... Myself, I feel I haven't seen a full shift or not even a complete like 100% attempt at any type of a complete shift to a more lenient uh, foreign policy from China's end. Hmm. And also, like, China still wants to keep really odd bedfellows when it comes to, well, divisive crises like, for example, the current situation in Ukraine. Hmm. So... It's kind of like, I, I can see that China has made some type of attempt. Exactly like like, like how how well-meaning or how with their full heart in the attempt China is being. Well, I am kind of a hesitant and I, I have a set, of, a set of questions regarding that. There's a lot of questions in the air. Uh, questions regarding whether it's the People's Republic of China that is actually uh, changing the Hollywood movies as we speak to a more lenient approach towards depictions of, of China or leaving China out of the movies altogether in some instances. And so is it actually the CCP in behind the curtain kind of pulling the strings or is it just that Americans... Uh, want to leave that hot potato out of it and just, you know, keep it more simple, not cause any conflict. And, and following that point, uh, especially with today's outings, the two Wolf Warrior films, I also feel that it's proper to also propose the question that is it China who is changing Hollywood or is it Hollywood that is changing China? Uh, Absolutely. I don't actually, because now having seen the two mega blockbusters, I'm I'm kind of uncertain if Chinese films are exactly as untouched by by the devious Hollywood fingers than perhaps they would want to believe. Right, because what I'm watching it is it perfectly translates to the Western audience, and well. This is obvious to anyone who has watched Chinese action movies of late. Obviously, they take influences from, well, what is the lingo of cinema at the moment? Definitely, that also entails Hollywood films. And I can perfectly see that an American person who has grown up on home action entertainment, he would be perfectly happy watching Wolf Warrior films. At least the second one, I, I think the... The first one uh, just fails in very basic elements still, even if it has some kind of interesting action there. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on, on that one. Yeah. And uh, uh, on, on the same level, like a part of that, of course, the, the whole perhaps an imaginary counter argument here would be that those are 
kind of a compromises that the, that Wolf Warrior films make just so that they can breach into the foreign cinema markets. Uh, they, they imitate old Hollywood action films, Rambo movies, just so that mm. they would be easier to sell to the Western audiences and this day, this way get into uh, outside of China into global markets. Like, I can't believe that that would be like the first counter argument that somebody would throw throw against us. And to a point I can actually see that, yeah, that could very much be the case. But I'm also kind of seeing that I see a possibility for a kind of an attitude shift when it comes to the mo- movies and when it comes to the ideas that the, that Wolf Warrior films want to play, play with. And with that attitude change here in, in two Wolf Warrior films, I can, I, I'm kind of interested in asking the question here today that does it somehow speak for a larger attitude shift inside China itself? Does it speak of a shift in that, or does it just speak of Chinese movie makers understanding what is selling in cinemas right now, what has been selling in in their cinemas, and to what actually China seems to have taken uh, uh, some kind of measures in the sense that at least in the summer markets of movies, the international films, at least Hollywood films, I know are are blocked so that the local cinema or the local movies can thrive. And that's also one reason why Wolf Warrior 2 seems to have been the success that it was. This came out in 2017. So yeah, way before COVID or anything. But yeah, is this a warning sign of any kind to Hollywood? Or is this just market manipulation on CCP's end? Those are all questions. might even be a warning sign to China itself. Depending on what is actually the answer to the question, why why are we perceiving uh, perceiving this attitude change in Wolf Warriors? Inside the movies, I mean. Mm. When I was watching the second film, what came to my mind is that definitely this this you may have seen Rambo more times than me, so maybe you can contribute on that does does wolf warrior 2 seem like a modern day rambo movie in a sense uh yes it does but not directly with any one rambo film yeah like uh the closest comparison that basically the entire world or at, at least the western world has drawn with wolf warrior especially with wolf warrior 2 is, is Rambo movies. Right. But what, what, what should be remembered here, or should be understood in those comments, is that they don't actually mean any specific Rambo movie. They are not drawing comparison between uh, Wolf Warrior 2 and Rambo th- 2, or Rambo 3. Rambo is used here as a kind of a as a shorthand to talk about a certain type of an action well, not really genre, but subgenre of Hollywood action movies. It's a, it's to talk about Rambo as Rambo esque movies, which was was a whole thing that Hollywood pushed out in intense in in hundreds of films. We are talking about missing in actions, uh, Rambo's themselves, 
uh, and in my opinion, yeah, when it comes to Rambo-type movies, Rambo Lights, Rambo Clone movies, Wolf Warrior 2 is remarkably same as those, but not like one-on-one principle. I would say, when I was watching Wolf, especially Wolf Warrior 2, but also with Wolf Warrior 1, the, the first image that came to my mind, the closest comparison that I automatically drew with the films to Hollywood, would be the mid-era Steven Seagal movies. Mm. You know, the time period with Seagal when he still wasn't ousted from Hollywood studios and he still would get Hollywood productions under under his name, but like we would have been already past past his prime uh, prime time, you know, the Hard yeah. to Kills and the first Under Sieges. Mm. Wolf Warrior 2 kinda smells like, you know, Fire Down Below era Steven Seagal movie. You have the Unkillable Badass, you have the one set, one location situation. Yeah. And all the action, even though you have a lot of jumping, a lot of guns, a lot of explosions, kind of like, you know, that the mid-era Steven Seagal film, films, somehow they still, despite all, all, all of the, the bullet casings and, and all, all of the exploding TNT, they still felt somehow incredibly cheap. Yeah, there's something lifeless about the first one. Wolf Warriors. Uh, when I watched it, I was like, oh gosh, do I have to go through again a set of Battle at Lake Chunching type of movies? And uh, yeah, I was feeling that very strongly, but things did improve quite dramatically in part two. And unfortunately for my audience, it is again kind of hard maybe to put the finger on why this is a problem in the first one. Uh, but but there is something about the locations that just don't have the uh, the same dynamics as in the second one, and uh, then you know the main plot elements are cheesy as fuck in the first one. Well, I I'm with you. The second one does improve. I'm hesitant to use the word dramatically. Um. There is there is there is an undeniable improvement that happens, but yeah. it happens in in quantities. It happens in quantities. The the action is something that improves quite a bit when it comes to all of the you know the plot elements themselves. Not necessarily any improvement at all, like in human interactions and uh, character motivations or. Uh, the, the the point of having certain characters all together. Yeah, that that does happen. In my opinion, also the action, even though it most definitely it does improve. I I wanna like emphasize this. Wolf Warrior Two is a hell of a lot more better more better film than what Wolf Warrior One is. Yeah, it's not but exactly a Terminator and Terminator Two it, kind it's, of situation. It's not Terminator. No. Even at its best, Wolf Warrior 2 still, in my opinion, is in Steven Seagal camp. Yeah, the, the characters are paper thin. That's yep. that's a big problem. Even the main that's character, big... I, I just don't resonate with this guy. Yeah, that 
Yeah, the whole character of Lei Feng, who is the titular wolf warrior in, in these films, there's a whole segment that we can actually kind of make go to about what type of a character he really is and does the character actually work. In the end, he is the same character as in the battle at Lake Chanjin. The actor is exactly the same. <laughs> and uh, his role in this movie is to be the kind of soldier who is extremely loyal to the government. Well, may perhaps even surprisingly, he does go against the orders of, of, his, of his troops. And then he gets ordered to move to the Wolf Warrior Brigade or troops. I, on the other hand, I actually felt that there was a, a massive, massive gap between Battle of Lake Chanxing and between Lei Feng in Wolf Warrior. Well, I was kind of even like surprised exactly how different the, the whole kind of central attitude of the character was. Okay, well, both of them are very patriotic and they would die for the country and they would second guess that ever that that's the similarities for sure those are yeah yeah those are the similarities but at the same time that's also where in my opinion the similarities end okay it's it's kind of like lake changing and a wolf warrior if if die hard i would die for my country patriotism would be a coin i would say that those two are different sides of the of the coin mm. but hey talking of more specific elements perhaps of the movie if we're up for that right now there are some things that rub us in the west a little bit the wrong way do you want to start with the obvious well what is the obvious well, if you can... The, the fact that all the bad guys are white, or, or, the, or the henchmen are westerners. Actually, not so much. And, and, and unfortunately, if we, are, we have been approaching these episodes, Shanjing and Wolf Warrior, from the aspect of, let's find that uh, Chinese propaganda that it reeks so bad that, you know, we will laugh these movies out of the window. Unfortunately, Battle at Lake Changing was even worse propaganda than Wolf Warrior is, and that's not saying much. I'm not, once again, perhaps 100% with you on that. Okay, fight me. Fight, fight. Okay. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can throw the opening punch. Then I will <laughs> counter and beat your ass. Um, so, in my opinion... Even though it has, you know, that white people essentially are are the bad guys, I don't think it overpronounces it that hey, these are American bastards. Or you can find even more heinous examples in American cinema. I don't really find anything even to talk about the whole whole setup that this has been now flipped. These are not even, you know, just straight up any American troops or. They are mercenaries who have left the United States Army and are, you know, in the case of the first movie, these guys are are working to deliver drugs. So yeah. obviously they are bad guys. In in a sense, there is no. Did you find any any notion where the skin color would be like 
or or their nationality would be a prime discussion point? Uh, not a situation where the nationality would be a prime discussion point. The nationalities will be mentioned most definitely, and the mercenaries are meant to be a shorthand for, well, a westerner. And that's where, in my opinion, for example, this draws a heavy turn from Lake Changxing. Like, Lake Changxing still argued that the western enemy that they are fighting is the US troops. Yeah. But in, in Wolf Warrior, the western enemy that they are fighting is... is a is more just a shorthand to Westerner. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, like the first films, uh, a Filipino drug lord, drug kingpin, and, and his, his deadweight brother are at the end of a day just a shorthand for Filipinos. Like, yeah, 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 the, the film talks about that our target is this one businessman who deals with arms and uh, arms and drugs but as the the final showdown of the film when when it comes to the chase uh, chase near the chinese border shows us the real conflict there is between the chinese nation and philippines as a nation since the whole black shirt army just all of a sudden starts to storm to to save their the drug lord, businessman, whatever, chosen god, who, mind you, whose whole plan is to steal the, the super virus weapon from China to Philippines, so that the Philippines can then genetically engineer the virus to just kill all the Chinese people. <laughs> so, okay. it's... It's it's just, it's using a shorthand there. It 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 doesn't say it, it doesn't go into a lecture about the the dastardly nature nature of the Americans. It just mentions American mercenary, and then you then it shows you a Russian mercenary, and then you have uh, undefined Western lady sniper mercenary, and those mercenaries are meant to be shorthands for. Generally, just the West. When yeah. it comes to to color, however, yeah, that's actually the one department where the film does make make it a, a like intentional talking point. Where's that? It's in Wolf Warrior Two, and this is like one of those those moments where you kinda have to. Have to know know what you are dealing with. Like I, I was, I, I knew that Wolf Warriors were Chinese propaganda, so I was kind of, I was kind of very. I, I approached these with with some caution, in the same way I like I, I approach the Lake Changxing. And part of part of my cautious project was that I did my best to actually track down the uh, the Chinese subtitles for these movies and then have them translated, especially. In ca- the case of, of Wolf Warriors, since these both have English-talking characters, meaning that the film has to have been... Their lines have to have been dubbed or subtitled for the Chinese audiences. And I actually managed to pull pull those. Uh, when it came to Lake Changxing, no, no big differentiations between, you know, the official English subtitles and the 
Chinese subtitles translated into English, but with Wolf Warrior 2, however, magic started to happen. And one prominent mo- moment is at the very end of the film, when Lei Feng fights against Big Daddy, the main white bad guy of the film. Now, in the official ti- uh, English titles, or in the dialogue, what Big Daddy says, says to Lei Feng is that people like you have always been beneath people like uh, me. Get used to it. And Lei Feng makes a kind of mysterious quote, it's history as he kills Big Daddy. Yeah. Which seems to come out of nowhere. But upon translating the Chinese subtitles that I managed to find for the film, apparently in, in the Chinese subtitling, Big Daddy states, your race will always be beneath mine. Get fucking used to it. And Lei Feng quotes, it's, it's history. And even even that, that counter-argument, it's history from Lei Feng, it's actually supposed to be a, some, a, some, one type of a dog whistle term or dog whistle for the Chinese audiences. So you're saying that for Chinese audiences they would have dubbed the audio for the American characters? Uh, they would at least, in my opinion, like, once again, what I tracked down was subtitle files. Yeah. So I actually suspect that they have just subtitled the spoken in English dialogue for the Chinese audiences. This all comes with a huge caveat, I'd say, that first of all, translating from Chinese to English is always prone to huge errors. But it is. In, yeah. It is. But, and, and, you know, to, do, to, to be transparent here, I didn't get any professional translator to work for me. I just used... Google Translate, which also is known to make errors, especially when translating hard-to-translate languages, like, for example, Chinese. But it seems like it's totally possible to happen at that moment. All right, interesting find. Um, Do you have something more on that, or I will get to the next quirk? Uh, Get to the next point, by all means. Yeah, well, technically... I don't know how how this should be uh, named. Is it is it misogyny or is just something that is unfavorable towards women? When in the first part, it starts with this very awkward scene where the wolf warrior Leng Feng thinks he's just talking to his colleagues on the plane, but ends up blabbering all this information about radio. How he thinks, quote. In my opinion, what this kind of woman needs is to be conquered by a man. A man like me. And uh, the leader of the operation of the Wolf Warrior Gang, whose name is Long Xiaochun. Long Xiaochun. Commander of the Warwolf Company. She hears all of this. And instead of being disgusted or just shrugging it off as a kind of a punk, she seems to be totally attracted right after uh, this notion, and some kind of a very ham-fisted love affair starts building out of nowhere between these two characters. I was telling about the characters and their motivations and how, you know, thin they are. Here's one example of such behavior. Uh, Yeah, Um, and when it comes to 
possible accusations of misogyny to be thrown at Wolf Warrior films. And when it comes to theorizing like where that misogyny would stem from, is it a genre thing? Is it just bad writing? Or is it something, you know, inherent to the Chinese men- uh, Chinese mentality when it, when it comes to equality between sexes or lack thereof? Like, that's a, its own hot potato. But what truly did strike me as well is the fact that exactly how much shit the, the female commander along Xiao Xin has to just swallow with here. Like, that's a good example of a moment in Wolf Warrior where you can just, you know, accuse the film for for mis- uh, misogyny. But even better example in my opinion is at the very end of the movie, when Leng Feng is is chasing the uh, chasing after after the fil- film's bad guy gets injured in during the chase and for a moment seems that that Feng is down for the count until all of a sudden Feng breaks the, the graveyard silence and ask ask from Long Xia Xing if she's single. Oh. In front of the like, like the whole group, like there's, there's an entire command center, room full of people, including other military higher ups, like commanders who equal equal Long Xiaxing in in rank, and Leng yeah. Feng is just like, "Are you single?" And yeah. Long Xiaxing is forced to answer that question, and not yeah. just answer it once, like like when she states that yes, yes, I'm single. Leo Leng Feng is like, can, can you repeat that? I didn't quite hear that. And then following that, you know, the other general who equals her in rank grabs the, the comms and he's like, yeah, she's single. A scene of anguish and squirmishing. I, I kind of felt bad for every single woman in that room at that moment. But that kind of is like, that kind of is, is the very much in the core essence of Leng Feng, and through him, Wolf Warrior movies all together. And that's actually one of, one of the, uh, the reasons why I, I feel that there is such of a big contrast when it comes to character in Wolf Warrior and when it comes to character in, in Battle at Lake Changxing. They kind of present almost, in my opinion, almost two completely different types of of people or two different types of character when you are not looking at just you know the one unifying fact which is the diehard patriotism towards the people's republic of china Mm. well fair fair enough looking from this viewpoint yeah it's quite amazing to have this kind of a level of magnetism that he doesn't even need to meet her face to face more than is it once and then they're already publicly pussy-whipping over the radio. But it does not end there. In the second film, there's also a scene in the Jeep where there is this Dr. Rachel who's ready to leave the car after she realizes that her only chance of survival, or that's how I read it, that her because of her only chance of survival, survival being this Chinese wolf warrior and not the Americans who... By the way, they have already left already, along with their star-spangled banners. Yeah. Leng Feng, the wolf warrior, 
He asks Rachel whether she thinks that the Americans have the best troops or, or soldiers. She agrees, yeah. And then Langfeng continues with some sentence that begins something like, that could be, but they're not here now. So I, th- I just thought that that was even a favorable sentiment, mildly so, towards the American troops. But maybe trying to cast this character as a, as a weak character, someone who does not believe in the in the Chinese troops, a lady who needs to be saved and who is in the wrong. Or am I reading too much on that front? Uh, also a lady, mind you, who tried to get diplomatic help from American Embassy in Africa by contacting them on Twitter. <laughs> That's made into a joke. Yeah, it's it's made into a joke, but apparently the lady was was that's exactly what what she did. Yeah. That, that's that's the limit of, of her capability in the situation. You are in the yeah. middle of a civil war. I asked yeah. for help with a tweet. Come on, lady, you won't. Find help in the American social media. Yeah. But then again, in, in her defense, like like no Twitter, uh, Twitter or no Twitter, she couldn't have ha- found any foreign help, seeing how, well, the Americans had already pulled out, every other Western nation had already pulled out, and United Nations, which exists in this film, in, in Wolf Warrior 2, only in dialogue and in one helicopter, is so impotent that they can't do absolutely anything to, in any way, affect the situation in Africa. In fact, Chinese Navy... Which makes a huge deal how they actually can't enforce anything in Africa, seeing how that is a foreign nation, and national army, like the Chinese Navy, can't just come there and start affecting the situation. Even they manage to actually be way more helpful and have a much larger stake in what happens in the film and how the conflict develops, and especially how the conflict in the end ends, then America, then the entire Western world, and then the United Nations. And there was this notion when uh, Leng Feng was trying to put Dr. Rachel into the UN helicopter. I guess you more or, more or less alluded to that part where he says, I'm more capable of protecting them than you, referring to the Africans, as the film likes to refer, refer to them. Africans. And that's kind of maybe an insidious notion. I know that they're in in the middle of a war zone, but but like, come on. She was there able to help them as a doctor. Wolf warrior Lang Feng is not able to help them as a doctor. I'm just, I'm just saying that that was kind of sounded really like a masculine point. Like, look lady, this is a war zone. You're not needed here. You can't help in any way. I'll take you out of here and get the finger for it. Well, regarding the representation of the African characters, as, as that is a big part of Wolf Warrior 2, it is notable for its portrayal of the African characters and, and the African country as a setting. The problem arises, though, that they have come up with at least five, six different names of places, cities, towns, regions, which are all made up, by the way, but they can't name a single time the country that they're in. Because 
it's all just, all just referred to Africa. And hey you Africans, go to this side of the hangar and the Chinese to this this side. Is this trying to say that the the Chinese is this kind of an kind of like a insult on the home audience's intelligence that they can't you know pick up some names in their school or during their life of different African countries? Like why are you referring to it only as Africa and Africans? Come on. Yeah, um, that actually is, is, is I, I get your point, and you by no means are wrong. I'm kind of more lenient there, with, with that thought in, in the movies. It's it's kind of, it's basically the same mistake that, that American media does almost constantly. There is something, I so I, I don't know if, if that's a tendency stemming from, from China, itself and China, China's attitudes towards Africa, we do know that China is somewhat, well, let's say self-centered mm. when it comes to the way how it views the, the rest of the world. And let's note, note this to be sure. This also, yeah, like you kind of alluded, also Americans are prone to this problem. Yeah, yeah, China... Yeah, this is those times when China is not at it alone. America also has has hard time remembering that Africa is actually a continent and that it is a, like the landmass that we that is Africa is a constellation of many dif- many individual countries. Right. Yeah, I just felt that throughout the movie this just kept irking me. And what if you would Flip that around, okay, we would refer to, if they were Ethiopians, okay, Ethiopians go to this side of the hangar, and Asians, you stay there, just referring to them blankly as Asians. How's that? How's that, China? How does it feel? Yeah, then again, uh, China, I I would say, kind of does know exactly how that feels, seeing how that is the treatment that, well, Western uh, cinema. Yeah. Especially uh, American cinema has subjugated Chinese people and, and well, Asian people too. Like, uh, so it's it's not like uh, well, we we in Finland we are actually quite innocent of of, of doing this, but we can't. Uh, but the Western territories can't really wash their hands from this problem and say that well, we never and Americans most definitely can't wash their hands from from this uh, this accusation but even though china has been subjugated to this treatment does not automatically mean that china is now somehow allowed or forgiven to to commit the uh, uh, to the commit same. africa to the same treatment yeah precisely precisely i wouldn't say that if, if that what that's what you were saying that that finns are not really prone to to this sort of mistake, the most definitely, uh, well, I, I think, we, w- to a lesser extent now, perhaps. Yeah, when it comes to generalization, by no means, Finland is not innocent. What, what I was aiming at is that, well, we never actually managed to make a film that I can quickly name that would have actually played a generalization card. Right, yeah. Something that affects the situation, perhaps, 
in large quantities is the fact that well Chinese uh, that Finnish filmmaking is quite of a small business and we haven't made that many films and the the films that we have made usually just is something happens in Finland and we we don't really have like Finnish movies don't largely deal with taking any type of a perspective or looking at the world outside of Finland which may may of of course has played a hand here in this situation like since we don't make global adventure films here in Finland there really is not that many times there hasn't been that many time for us to actually do a film that would largely generalize the world outside of Finland choreography stunt work I kind of enjoyed, especially in the second one. It was well shot and uh, quick, and yeah, just a joy to look at. I don't know about a joy to look at. Well, it's it, it was well shot, but in my opinion, not actually without its grievances. Not without its grievances. Perhaps it just felt so good after my grievances of the first movie that I was yeah, definitely... Yeah, I, I I can understand that. Then again, when it comes to the cinematography in the second film, I kind of felt that the cinematographer dropped the ball in the opening underwater fight, for example. <laughs> kind of became a, a mess to actually locate where the people were and who was punching in what direction. Also, of course, the physics didn't actually work. <laughs> Can't really have no. strength in your punch when you're fighting on water but you know whatever but that that's one of the running problems that I did have with Wolf Warrior films throughout both movies I, I kind of think felt that the camera was spinning too much it wanted to do too many moves yeah yeah in in situations where like, like enemies are are storming from the front from the back from the sides and it it kind of becomes a tumbled mess exactly where the characters are and wh- what what they are looking at and when where are they pointing their guns at, etc., etc. A second problem that I have, and I know that the cinematographer itself is not at fault here because he can't help the way how the stunt was done. But for example, the second film has the the factory fight fight scene has the, has the stunt where Lei Feng runs up the stairs and jumps through the f- window. To land at the office to, to save the hostage from from was it the the black mercenary dude? Right. And boy, oh howdy! Did I actually wish that that would have been one take where we like, could have just follow Lei Feng running the stairs, making the jump, and crash landing through the window? Just one continuous shot. Now, obviously, yeah, I I know how they made made the stunt that it was made in two parts. Mm. So I can't say that, you know, bad cinematographer and I can't say bad editor. They had to do make the best with the material that they had. But seeing how hands-on Wolf Warrior wants to be on its, stun- on its stunts, seeing how hard it wants to be, well, ba- basically the next Jackie Chan thing, where to a point where both films have the... The failed stunts and injuries making this movie real, playing with the end credits, just like all the old Jackie Chan features. I really was hoping that, you know, the cinematographer and the editor would have found a better way to shoot and cut 
that stunt than the one that they utilized in the film. Because in here, in my opinion, it kind of takes the wind out of the hole. I jump through this window thing. The way how it's actually, in the end, executed in the film. As a stunt, as in the way how it was shot, and also as in the way how it was edited. I think basically all the departments dropped the ball there. And I'm... That's something that I was... I was kind of... Every so often, that was something that just, you know, picked its head. I, I felt that these three departments dropped the ball. And I, I was seeing moments, I was seeing stunts that could have been so goddamn good. That could have got you so hyped on the action. If if these three departments just would have done a better job. Another thing that is kind of obvious when watching the films, but going to mention it anyway, is the... I don't know, overuse of CGI, but just bad CGI. And I would say too much use of it. For example, having those drones done completely in CGI, what definitely looks like it. I would say it seems unnecessary. It's it's absolutely uh, unnecessary. There There are walls that break where you have a practical wall and then... CGI powders are just, you know, added yeah. into the picture. Oh my and you God. can clearly tell which one is which, which one is practical, which one is, is CGI. Because the CGI looks infinitely worse in those moments. You have things like the entire wolf pack, the Wolf Warrior 1. It's like seven wolves. Yeah, yeah, I was... All with CGI, and it's absolutely horrible. CGI is is one department where these films do improve. Like, like Wolf Warrior 2, CGI is is at the level of PS2 cutscene. (laughs) And in Wolf Warrior 2... uh, In Wolf Warrior 1, the the CGI is at the level of a PS2 cutscene. And in Wolf Warrior 2, they managed to upgrade it to PS3. (laughs) That's a pretty accurate assessment. And the this, thing this. that they don't actually manage to upgrade is the bloody ADR, which comes even more prominent in Wolf Warrior 2. And oh my god, if that's not horrible to hear. I noticed, I did notice that when, when they're speaking to the radio or the, the megaphone. But uh, yeah, that wolf scene and why the wolves do not escape the situation. <laughs> it's completely unnatural. They, they, are, they do not care about gunshots. They just keep coming in packs. Yeah, and and you also get like you you do remember the the early days of of American blockbusters when when Americans figured out that hey with computer graphics we can implement characters and beings into the film that don't really really uh, exist. Arachnophobia, snakes on a plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of those. Uh, I, I'm looking even more way back, like Mortal Kombat One. <laughs> And Liu Kang versus rep- Reptile, as as Reptile was a was a bloody lizard. Uh, it's been a while. And I was I was a it's kid. It's been back a while. Then. But but even in those films, you can kind of see that the uh, the flesh and bone actors kind of don't. They kind of can't just mask the fact that whatever they are fighting against, be it be it a monster, be it a snake on a plane, it doesn't really exist there. Like, yeah, they, they, there's something like they, they try to hit it and you kind of just see that they are hitting the thin air and they are just... It, the effect just doesn't work. 
And at Wolf Warrior 1, when they are fighting against the wolves, uh, the pack of wolves, like exactly the same effect. You, you can see that everyone, when, when they attach the bayonets and when they try to fight what the wolves there, you can see that they are shooting thin air. Thin air. They are hitting thin air with their rifles. Yeah, absolutely, should have put that put that scene on a cutting room floor. What's the purpose of that scene? <laughs> Except that they're wolves against wolves. Yeah. yeah. Before we get to the quickies, um, in the beginning of the episode, I was wondering, like, does Wolf Warrior uh, does it somehow? channel or communicate some type of attitude shift that would be going on inside of China or if the film's attitudes simply stem from the fact that this that wolf warriors obviously want to co- copy well basically I, w- I would say 80s Hollywood action films and just give them a, just a quick modern polish and to kind of linger on on that question just a bit more. Now, last time we talked about Battle at Lake Changshing, and we talked about the film's directors, including Chewie Hark, and his Once Upon a Time in China film series got mentioned in that discussion. And Once Upon a Time in China, well, those are martial arts movies that mainly take place in China. And martial arts movies often deal with this concept that I can't kind of pronounce, but I guess it's called Jianghu, or like a more flowery, a flowery mm. version, rivers and lakes, outlaw world, which I've understood marks kind of a, a spiritual border between order and chaos. And spiritual border here meaning a different, uh, as, as inside of, the nation itself. The general idea is that there is mainland China, which is the nation that has the geographical location that we can find on the map, and that mainland China is orderly and well-behaving place, formed by orderly and well-behaving Chinese people. But it does house inside of it Jiangu, which is a kind of an ideological sphere inside of China where outlaw element would exist. So, in other words, it's an attempt to kind of differentiate between, you know, a hard-working, law-abiding Chinese citizen and a Chinese citizen who is a violent, angry farmer, who is a bandit, who is a Chinese pirate, who is a violent booze fiend, these are all people who still exist inside of China, the nation, but instead of being representatives of China-like well-behaving folks, spiritually they would be presenting Jianghu, since they don't follow the orderly behavior. And that's something that is, in my opinion, expressed in martial arts movies like Once Upon a Time in China. But just like once Upon a Time in China Part 6, which takes place in, in US, uh, Wolf Warrior takes, in my opinion, the concept of Jianghu and places it outside of, of China itself. In Wolf Warrior 1, it's, it's, it's placed with the, the downright genocidal Filipinos. Leng has to stop them at the, the China-Philippine border, 
And Wolf Warrior 2, in my opinion, takes the concept of Chiangu and places it places it to Africa. Okay. And in my opinion, the importance that uh, this uh, the, the whole idea of, that I'm ballparking here, that the whole concept of Chiangu is is one of the reasons why it's so important that that Leng is located outside of People's Republic of China. And especially in Wolf Warrior 2 has been banished from the Chinese armed forces because of his uh, because his failure to obey commands. Because that means that if Jiangu is somewhere outside of China, now Leng can exist wherever Jiangu is. And what that pattern also invokes is kind of a much older model of of behavior or Chinese behavior. Come Louis famously argues that Chinese culture, there are two patterns, uh, there are two positive mod- models of masculinity. One that is refined, uh, one that is, is called when masculinity, which is usually the, the officially approved version of masculinity. It's the t- typified by the scholars, g- gentlemen, soft figures, of great leaning with no aggressive character, uh, characteristics. And these, these are like uh, the people who go with the flow, who suppress their inner feelings and and their aggression, suppress their greed, their, their lust, or the negative attributes and keep them in control. And are these balanced, uh, kind of a almost zen, with zen attitude, behaving members of the society. These would be examples of when masculinity. The other masculinity would be more martial or, or woo masculinity, which is more closer to the, the, the typical Western macho masculinity. And the, the difference, uh, difference between how the Chinese society perhaps has has approached these two masculinities, not only has, has when masculinity been usually been the one that has been championed as more attractive to more women, uh, kind of a more contributing to, to the society at large, but also it has been the, it has been seen that when men are the ones that rule the kingdom and the home, and the woo mask the people who presenting woo masculinity would act in the space outside of civilization to secure the civilization's borders, in this case China. So women would be those who wouldn't really exist inside of China, but would be in Wolf Warrior 2 fashion, for example, in Africa, and working there to protect China's borders and China's interests. And the reason why why this started to intrigue me is because Leng, like we talked about Le, uh, Leng's misogynistic attitudes, uh, so therefore Leng obviously presents the Wu masculinity, and he he still is kind of in control of his violent tendencies in Wolf Warrior Two, where he still, mind you, he lets the bad guy keep his life at the end of it, but in Wolf Warrior Two we often see him in the chores of almost psychopathical aggression. Leng loses his cool and loses his shit a number of times in Wolf Warrior 2, showing extremely hard and violent masculinity. 
and he full on loses control, all control, and becomes a complete monster in the final act when he kills Big Daddy, whereas in Wolf Warrior 1 Ming Leng was allowed to keep his life, and in my opinion this kinda, that the fact that Wolf Warrior 2 is a giant ass mega blockbuster in China, that the fact that Leng as a character is allowed to go so deep into, well, borderline psychopathic behavior, and be so aggressively violent, and this way going against the more more older, more traditionally championed version of Chinese masculinity, I kind of have to ask if it's like two que- or two questions rise to me from that. The first one is that is it truly so that China or at least Wolf Warrior franchise sees the entire world outside of China as uh, as Chiangu? Do the films champion that that China is the safe safe mainland country and everything that exists outside of China, even its close border neighbors like the Philippines, are these these lawless, out of bounds. Kind of like like lawless bandit wastelands. So that you mean just that crime and rape just happens. So and they are all out to get you. So so you're you're saying that because he's allowed to be in a different country in Wolf Warrior Two, he has to kind of become like the the ho- horrible unsophisticated beasts that I, are are I, I, are there and and that is weird to be allowed to be seen on Chinese cinema. In my opinion, he is a weird, a violent beast from the get-go. But you're referring to him as having the Wu masculinity in the part two, which also... Uh, I, in my opinion, he does have it in, in part one also, but Marsh- it's more in control in, in part one. In, in other words, martial valor. Uh, in other words, words yeah, martial valor. Okay. But I, I, I do see the Wu masculinity in in him also in the first one. Like, like both films make the, the case that Leng can't follow orders, can't suppress himself to the control and hierarchy of, of his his uppers, his generals. He's a, so- a soldier who constantly refuses to listen what the generals and the, the higher-ups tell him to do, constantly breaking against the rules. But, but that's not martial valor, right? The Wu is, is seen as a good type of masculinity, not out-of-bounds masculinity behavior. Uh, I, on the other hand, think that... or the I, I've kind of got, got the image that from these two masculinities, Wu would traditionally be seen as the lesser masculinity. Mm, okay. Like, okay. like when would when masculinity would be the one that is is more championed or more encouraged since that masculinity is is softer it's is more lenient mm. to to uh to someone telling you what to do so you are kind of e- more easier to be rude and also because that masculinity can e- e- uh, perhaps better kind of build the society where the masculinity would would exist, or or when men would be more would be better at building China as a nation than perhaps those expre- uh, those showing Wu masculinity. 
Okay, well, I, I can't challenge you here. I haven't done my reading on this part. Yeah, yeah. I uh, also, I'm not making a case that I'm an expert here, since I'm I'm not expert on, on China. But the second question that I actually roused my mind from from Wolf Warrior movies is that if it's if the answer to the first question does Wolf Warrior franchise see the entire world outside of China as as Chiangu then this, the follow-up question if yes does that then mean that in true woman style going completely against the tra- uh, going completely against the traditional Chinese idea of suppressing your desires and your violent tendencies Wolf Warrior would then argues that in order to oppose Chiangu, you you have to adopt this anything must go mentality. So does Wolf Warrior kind of champion the idea that instead of staying in control of yourself, instead of suppressing your desires for violence, you instead should take this mentality where Everything can be sacrificed in order for you to win. You can be as violent as possible. You can be as sadistic as possible. You can be downright psychopathic. You can you can hurt hurt anyone you want. You can betray your friends. Do whatever as long as you win. That's kind of the vibe I'm getting. Anything for the motherland, whether you are abroad or wherever in the world. Yeah, as stated in the ending. In in my opinion, it's it's perhaps somewhat even even surprising because I, I got the same reading that that was the way that the, the, that was the message that Wolf Warrior movies wanted to give to you especially the second one and that's in my opinion that's a huge contrast to, to the battle at Lake Changxing where basically the, the whole battalion is willing to just sacrifice themselves and, and the whole point of, of at the end of a day for for the two movies is that the fucking regiment seven has to has to show up one man strong and and still sign up for duty? Like in my opinion, in in Battle of Lake Lake Changxing, you see more of the Wen masculinity, where they suppress basically all their own inner desires just in order to be there or just in order to make it for the next assignment. Just uh, everything personally wise is to be sacrificed just so that the the platoon or the or the battalion the seventh battalion of that film can make it to the headquarters and show up to the commandants and get the bloody flag that please don't die is handed at the end of the film yeah that's and, that's kind of what i'm what i'm getting and i can completely see why the the wolf warrior politics term is is known in in china yeah and following that it's in in like in western rambo-esque media landscape we are kind of used to the idea that the hero does whatever it takes to win and we are used to the the idea of these lone wolf heroes our our rom Ro, john rambos and basically everything played by steven seagal but I would kind of almost argue that that type of mentality is kind of, in my opinion, it's not so, or I personally haven't seen that type of mentality so often in Chinese media. So to me, Wolf Warrior can, uh, so I, I'm kind of wondering, is Wolf Warrior 
a mirror for a larger tonal shift currently taking place in, inside of China. Are, is China or are Chinese men in general starting uh, kind of a, making a shift from then masculinity to Wu masculinity and championing the Wu masculinity? If I had to make a wild guess, yes. The public seems to be in support of this more brute force, wolf warrior-esque political uh, takes on, on, on international affairs. The Xi Jinping uh, escalatory language is at an all-time high at the moment. But I think, yeah, to answer your question, I think it seems to be popular uh, way of approaching all the things that irk uh, Chinese in international affairs. Okay. Well, it would be really exciting to see exactly how China perhaps possibly is going to change in the future as a result. And and, and you, say, you said that you haven't seen this kind of behavior in Chinese media before. And I would even say that I haven't seen this kind of behavior in American media before. Like this... I, maybe it's not fair to say that what we see in Wolf Warrior 1 and 2 would be... Okay, let me rephrase that a little bit. I have to be careful here. I, I think it would be... Too much to say that the Wolf Warrior movies would be speaking of, of some kind of a inferiority complex in China, but it might be speaking of certain frustrations that China feels when it comes to international politics, that their country is being criticized sometimes for valid reasons, reasons that are not being addressed, like the Uyghur Muslim situation, and not being completely open about it. But I can, I can see how this constant criticizing of the China might affect the, the public opinion and veer it into the negative opinion of, of the outside world, or at least the, the Western so-called hegemony. And that might be dangerous, because I, I haven't seen this very such of an offensive way perhaps you know small things like the end titles of of the film wolf warrior wolf warrior 2 i haven't i haven't seen that kind of mentality in american movies where where they would state that we would be ready to do anything to defend america or am i pushing it i don't know no you actually aren't pushing it that's a that's a good call actually yeah the end titles of the film. Because Wolf Warrior 2 closes with the, the shot of with, with a shot of the, the Lei Feng's passport. And, and the message on the screen states well once again roughly translated to the pe- uh, to the citizens of People's Republic of China, when you find yourself in danger in a foreign country, never give up hope. China's strength will always support you Leng Feng. That actually a bit disturbed me a little bit. Yeah, it it, it did me, me also. Also, uh, I once again, this is a desperate attempt to for me to to try to translate an internet image of Chinese Wolf Warrior Two poster. But that the best translation I managed to get for Wolf Warrior Two's tagline would be. 
Whoever offends the Chinese will be wiped out, no matter how far away. <laughs> Holy shit. Once again, once again, that's that's me trying to do translations. So you know, I I may have just just fucked it up a bit. But but you talked about the Chinese, the possibility of of a Chinese inferiority complex showing up in in Wolf Warrior films, hmm. and I'm kind of going to to half 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 challenge you because I actually think that perhaps an inferiority complex does show up. In Wolf Warrior 2. Okay. Or at, at least some type of a, a feeling, or some type of a some type of a feeling of a legacy of a humiliation. And yeah. in, in here, I'm I'm harking back into the last line Lei Fe, uh, Leng Feng says to to Big Daddy. It's history, which is kind of a like I said, it it felt kind of a, like a cryptic dog whistle for the Chinese audiences. Now. Chris Perry made, made an article where he argued that what that line was meant to symbolize for the Chinese audience uh, would be the time when Mao, uh, Chairman Mao, famously dated the beginnings of modern Chinese history to the 19th, 19th century opium wars, when the British gunboats forced the country to open its borders. Yeah, And this would kind of be... A century of humiliation. Now, I'm not completely certain where Chris Perry, in his article, draws this comparison. But if Chris Perry really is is at the right here, if it's his, if the line "it's history" is to meant to kind of give the the Chinese audiences of Wolf Warrior Two some type of a way way to mend over the, the historical. Well, atrocities of, of, the, of the opium wars and the British involvement in in those cases. In that case, you know, I could actually see that there would be a legacy of of humiliation that the Chinese would still be kind of a tied up with, or they couldn't have yet gotten over with. And therefore, and from that point, perhaps Wolf Warrior Two is talking about a Chinese inferiority complex. I yeah. I, I admit, I admit, it's a bit of a reach. Bit of reach. Yeah. Uh, you know, if if Perry is right in that case, yeah, Wolf Warrior 2 could be an example how modern day China is trying to tackle and get over over its inferiority complex. Yeah. If, if that's a, the right word. Or if the movie is more like an angry rebuttal of everything where China has stayed silent tried tried to play i guess the friendly international diplomacy whereas they often get criticism from america's direction and this might be like the enough moment yeah but it is it is a curious line it is a curious subtitles uh, let's say that the subtitles are actually kind of a mess so i wouldn't put too yeah, much faith true. into the english subtitles either yeah, yeah that that is is true all right. Any special mention for an actor that you would like to provide? Uh, I will give my my special mention to. Well, I should give it to Ching Wu, who plays Plang Feng and is the main guy here. But but I end up giving it to Frank Grillo, mm. who is 
actually surprisingly capable B-list Hollywood action star every now and then, visiting also A-list features like those Marvel movies playing bad guy here, and in, in Wolf Warrior 2 giving a really strong performance as an American actor desperately trying to cash in a big paycheck. Yeah, to my to my surprise, also I didn't realize watching it uh, while watching the movie, but he is also known for playing like a supporting role in the first seasons of Prison Break, which I just finished the whole Prison Break uh, TV series. Uh, so yeah, he's playing Nick Savrin in season one and two. So kind of surprised to see him here. And if you look at you know. Most of his bios, they don't really address his involvement in Wolf Warrior 2, which is kind of ridiculous because it's one of his, you know, <laughs> it's a huge thing inside China anyway. It's, it's also, yeah, it's, it's also surprising in the sense that I'm not certain exactly how Krillo himself feels about his, his involvement in Wolf Warrior 2, but he has given uh, public interviews about his role where he has talked highly about his movie and about the movie and about the shoot and how it all went he has been proud of the fact that he apparently his character big daddy ended up being an action figure in chinese toy markets <laughs> so it like unless frank grillo has changed his mind lately He's not someone who looks back at Wolf Warrior 2 and has this, this gust of shame on top of him. And he's like, oh my god, I have to quiet this film down permanently. And if, if he doesn't feel that shame, then it actually raises a really good question. Why Wolf Warrior 2 is so invisible in Frank Grillo's resume? Um, could be like the, the, the public ignorance regarding the film. Yeah, yeah, could be. But then again, Frank Grillo has given like public interviews about the movie. Yeah. So, so someone should know about it. Yeah. Well, on my part, uh, I will just give it to Jan Hang or Hans Zhang, which I called during watching Wolf Warrior 2 as the K-pop soldier. And lo and behold, once again, the pretty boy is a singer in China. They're all singers. All of these guys who seem to be bringing their face toolkit to the set of the movie to look as shiny as possible. Not that there was anything really that particularly amazing about the performance, but just wanted to bring up this character who is not a K-pop star. But I was like, yeah, if we want to go with, you know, stereotypes here. Bring attention to some very small role in the film that you found somehow worth highlighting. Mmm, my end would be the CGI wolves, I guess. Hey, let's give it to CGI wolves. I, I will steal this one. What, what worked? Uh, well, for me, what worked was, I guess, just the, the interesting subject of showing the Chinese in Africa, just bringing this subject to the forefront, and the Chino-Russian relations there, <laughs> At least in the context of the movie, it was interesting that we have a, had a, like a Russian baddie in the movie. Russians being the other big, uh, I don't know how to say, occupiers 
of certain Afri African countries now and having big business going on around there. So that that was interesting. Uh, but what like worked? Uh, whew, the the action at times. Uh, I will give it to the second second part. The action was well choreographed. Yeah, on my end, I would kind of say that the propaganda, and not not in the sense that the propaganda itself would have necessarily worked for me. Like I I was applying for Chinese citizenship, hail communism. Way before I ever watched Wolf Warrior movies, right? I'm still trying to have GC Ping's face tattooed in my my left butt cheek here. But what I mean with with the propaganda working is is the fact that well, well, once again, harkening back into our previous episode, Battle at Lake Changing. Now that was e extremely obvious in its its propaganda. And, it, and the messaging of that propaganda. And there really really was not that much to, to talk about or think about in, in the propagandistic content of that film. And I'm not making the case that Wolf Warrior films are great propaganda. It's not really subtle. Like, you can... Are, are Wolf Warrior movies, are they semantic propaganda? Yeah, they are. Do you notice it? Absolutely, yeah. But I do think that at times the propaganda in Wolf Warrior is a bit more smarter than what it was in Battle at Lake Changing. Mm. I'm cutting, looking at, for example, the moment when uh, they, in Wolf Warrior 2 they are at the factory and it, it comes evident that there's a limited number of people that can be rescued from that factory and the factory's owner owner's initial response is to separate the Chinese citizens who are to be res rescued from the local workers who include also like like that one kid's mom which is supposed to be like the kids is supposed to be some type of a major thing in in the film's narrative but yeah this separation happens and in that moment like it it could almost look like that the film is not propaganda like you it, it, it lends the movie the moment to say that hey look at this we are also portraying a, a Chinese character in a negative light therefore we are not propaganda but what that me moment really is about it's about resonating with the class tensions inside inside China where an ever-growing wealth gap has been undermining the acceptability of of basically the old idea of letting some people get rich first. So while that moment, while that scene might at first seem like it's some type of a su suppressive moment, it is fully in line with the policies of Xi Jinping's regime, which has been used not only nationalism, also an anti-corruption campaign drawing uh, on resentment of the rich to bolster the regime's le legitimacy. And that angle, actually, like, it still is, like I said, it's full-on Xi Jinping, pro-Xi Jinping propaganda, but it at least, if nothing else, it's a bit more insidious, and at the same time a bit more smarter, bit more nuanced than the 
the full-on in-your-face propaganda that we got in Battle of Lake Changshing. And therefore, I actually do think that when, when, if I would have to, to pick between Wolf Warrior and Battle of Lake Changshing, what works in Wolf Warrior is the propaganda. Yeah, I agreed. Uh, what, what didn't work? Uh, I couldn't escape the feeling, like I said before, that this is mid-tier Steven Seagal. The, the action just did not gra- uh, grab me into its hold, and somehow I... And there are like a million things that, that affects into my feelings about Wolf Warrior films. It's bad CGI, it's ter- terrible ADR, it's the lack of characters, it's the, the lack of stakes in action scenes. It's mm. also the fact that they are shot in really cheap locations. One is in the, in forest, the other is somewhere in Africa. So all of those come together. And my, in my opinion, the action in Wolf Warrior movies, including Wolf Warrior 2, just looks cheap. Yeah, I mean, th- these are in no way special movies. The kind of a specialty for us comes from the sort of exotic nature of this being the Chinese blockbusters. But, I mean, l- look at this kind of a film in the context of, of, of a Hollywood movie and say that there's uh, like a a shred of any originality in these movies. And I'd say no. So there's a lot that, that didn't work. It's really really run-of-the-mill in a way, even though it has some nice choreography to be seen. And, I mean, professionals are at the helm, but at the same time, it's it's really hollow in, the, in its characters, in its story, and like you said, in its stakes. And therefore, I would say that the main reason for the success of Wolf Warrior 2 is, in fact, the Chinese... Uh, uh, movie market manipulation during the summer days of 2017. How about Wolf Warrior 1 and 2 in one word? What would that word be? It would be... It's it's tricky because it's Wolf Warrior 1 and 2, but I, I'm saying smartish? Parenthesis compared to Battle at Lake Changing. D- does a whistle count? <laughs> I can't whistle today. I don't know why. <whistles> Will this film survive the test of time? Uh, that's a tough one. That's actually a tough one. Not in the West. No, people will forget it. The question is, how about in China? I think it's a movie that people will not watch much, but they, they will know of its existence uh, thanks to its in, in kind of getting into the, well, once again, to the, the kind of a daily lingo of China, the politics and all. It, it, it could be, it could be. I was going to say no. I was actually thinking that even though, yeah, Wolf Warrior 2 was a major box office success, but I was kind of thinking that it's it's similar type of situation like something like in the West, for example, uh, Michael Bay Transformers movies. Make a gazillion bucks at the box office, but give it five years, nobody remembers what happened in last night, for example. But now that you mentioned actually its effect on Chinese political lingo, perhaps yeah. Hmm. Perhaps because of that, this actually would have 
a legacy, at least in China. Complete the sentence, you really know you're watching Wolf Warrior films when? You really know you're watching Wolf Warrior when the enjoyment you feel for being recruited to worship Xi Jinping takes a nosedive when you notice that fat kid is all about eating because fat kid and fat older black woman starts singing Amazing Grace because hey, the Americans did it in the 80s. You really know you're watching Wolf Warriors when you smirk at references of Twitter and American Germany on a cheap drive through somewhere in Africa and continue smirking at everything really while someone is throwing six grenades on your face and you unwind by drinking water or spirits to impress girls or Africans depending on the day to show off your woo. Did you like the films? Ah. I I liked these more than Battle at Lake Changshing, but then again, that's kind of a, a low bar to get over. So they ain't absolutely terrible, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I liked them. Uh, same here. I'm not even sure if these will survive the test of time in, in even China, other than for the name Wolf Warrior, because this is... And it's going to be even more in the future, just your run-of-the-mill Americanized action movie with your Steven Seagal basics attached to it. So, um, uh, no, and I'm not even sure if I would rewatch these films when it comes to that. Yeah, I'm strongly in the camp of no. Right. Well, bummer. I think we already covered which one is the stronger film. So if I, if I would put in order of preference, two comes first. But how about it? Would you actually recommend these movies to an outsider? Um, well, maybe it's the kind of bias showing in me. I would slightly recommend Sisu because of the, the settings and the culture that I am bound to by my birth given right but to, to watch these to recommend to watch these mm, if you're a hardcore movie fan and you want to know what's what's going on at the top of the box office in in china for whatever reason yeah perhaps you don't need to even be a hardcore movie watcher to check it out but i i think you have a solid reason to watch it if you are a big movie buff to keep up on things. But for the casual viewer, I don't know. Think you can watch some other films too, and you might not be so interested to to find out what's at the top of the box office in China. I would say that if you if you're going to watch this, watch it for educational reasons only. Uh, and yeah. that goes for number 2 specifically. Skip the number 1. Yeah. I'm I'm with you on on skip number 1. I on my end, I would also skip number two. The action, even even at its best, with with which is what it is in in number two, it never actually grabbed me. Somehow, like I've I've already said it, but somehow it well felt surprisingly cheap, and the overall atmosphere is something that I've gotten already from from Steven Seagal movies. Also, the fact that I'm surprised how bad. The CGI, the ADR, are in both of these films. You mentioned the fact that 
this shows the Chinese movies becoming Americanized, which, yes, it, it does. At the same time, that fact also means that there is no, like, real... I, I want to watch a Chinese movie, so I watch Wolf Warrior Point to mm. watch these movies, because they are so Americanized. And at the same time, as, as they are so Americanized, it's actually surprising to me how little they apparently have learned from the American films that came before these. Mm. I'm especially looking at the fact exactly how many of the same mistakes these movies make. And yeah. my, my biggest problem and my best example to give, give to everybody here would be the heavy leaning into the badass loner type. Just like Rambo's Lengfeng here is the badass loner who doesn't follow orders, goes co- constantly against against the system, he's his superiors, basically the military itself, which he then swarms that he is there to protect. He's he is like the title says, he's a wolf warrior. And at the same time, that kind of a completely, absolutely shoots in the foot the idea that, like like the second film says, that a soldier is a source of confidence even without the uniform, because the soldier kind of shows some type of a constant by, by his, his presence alone. But these lone wolf heroes, they, they fail to do that. You can't go against the army itself and at the same time somehow spread this this aura of confidence to people around you. In fact, you would be the most dangerous dude on the battlefield because you mm. don't listen to orders. And 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 in the same way like when these films want to pull off that that macho bullshit in in a larger scale when when they want to show when Lang Feng joins the Wolf Warrior squadron, they want to show you the how the other guys in in the other Wolf Warriors come to meet him, and they roll out the tanks, and they have a stealth mission around Lang Feng and and stuff like that, which is complete waste of money and so bullshit that you can't believe it. They they all uh, refuse to be Serbian to the military higher ups. It's it's like a complete shit show, and I like this is a problem that the American badass loner flicks already did. I'm kind of surprised that that coming like like forty years later, the Chinese Americanized Chinese movie just willy nilly walks into every single exact same landmine that the American predecessors. Yeah. It's like they knowingly refuse to learn anything from the mistakes that the Americans made. While at the same time, the film wants to somehow make the statement that China and made in China is somehow better than, you know, the Western counterpart. Yeah, that's kind of uh, ironic that you have this heavily American-influenced movie and then you are making it about very patriotic, patriotic subject matters, in my opinion. And this kind of an oddity to me, at least, that the lead character is somebody who actually does not obey the orders. Even though he's an extremely patriotic person, or so he claims to be. 
he's, he's the favorite soldier who gets his ass kicked out of the army. Yeah. And he's constantly in trouble because he refuses to do what the soldier is supposed to do. An anti-hero? Also, he's a goddamn dumbass. Killing the, the creator in, in the beginning of the second film in front of the uh, front of an entire police squad. Yeah, what the hell was that? Yeah. But it's okay because the military leadership also is, is just a bunch of dumbasses. Once Leng Feng is kicked out of the army and lands his ass in jail, Long Xia Xing, for some odd reason, still wants to marry him. <laughs> and he's, he's like, here is the marriage certificate. This is better be written when I return. Yeah. Like, Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> What's going on here? And I also remember there being many moments where I was wondering why is this happening and why is this coming out of the blue and what does this mean? Some of the blame may, may be going to the subtitles, but for example that scene, scene when, yeah, you were mentioning that uh, Lang Feng shoots the guy in front of the police forces. They're destroying the buildings. I know it yeah, is they, that... Yeah, they are tearing down the one... The, the one guy dies... In, in Wolf Warrior 1. Yeah. And now they are tearing down the dead soldier's family's home. Which are all next to each other then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe in China they do <laughs> put all the soldiers next to each other to live. Or it's some kind of a, I don't know, near the barracks home. But yeah, there were many moments of confusion. Why this thing now? Okay, I, I think that's... That's enough for today. Of course, we'd like to hear from our listeners if you have any differing opinions, new viewpoints uh, to say on, on these two Chinese movies. Come tell us on the channels that we that we occupy on the interwebs. Would that also be that for well, Chinese propaganda at, on this podcast, at least for the time being? For the time being, I think that's it. Oh, thank heavens. We tried. We, we, we tried. Propaganda still isn't in that interesting. Yeah. But hey, see you in a fortnight. Until then. Saatana oli se muija, joka mahdollisesti lauloi Amazing Gracea. Mä kutsun sitä vaan The African Supermama. Okay. What's our next episode about? That's a good question. What is it about? Kari ranting his head off about all the things that makes him psychotically fucking hateful towards some quirks in cinema industry. I don't know if anybody wants to hear that. <laughs> I don't know either. I'm still trying to have Cheesy Pink's face tattooed in my, my left butt cheek here.